0: Yeah, I'm not muted. Everybody can hear me well, right? Um, So, um, and then I'll go ahead and start. Um, So um, today we have a couple of cases and um, conveniently uh, called this presentation atypical presentations in atypical nephritis. but they they are current and recent past um, cases. Uh, one very recent, where um, Dr. Conway is going to present. I, I also wanted to take the opportunity to present um, Dr. Kyle Conway. He's our uh, newest uh, member of our renal pathology division. Some of you may may or may not have um, heard that I am leaving as of um, August 13th. Um, we miss dearly this department, but um, Dr. Kyle is doing a wonderful, you know job he, he's um he's joined us since uh, he's joined the pathology department for over a year right right Kyle? Yep.
1: Yep. But, over uh, a year. Uh,
0: with renal pathology he started with us end of april beginning of may and some of you may have seen his name in, in some reports and he's actively signing out reports as of now um and um so without further, <laughs> further notice right. you can take it away
1: <laughs> great all okay. right thank you very much i will I, I guess
0: I'll
1: stop sharing. Oh, okay. I think yeah. I think oh, I can. Maybe. I think okay. I can probably just take over. Let's see. So that should be okay. All right. Can you see my PowerPoint now?
0: Mm,
1: I
2: can't. But let
3: me. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Let me. Need to, let me give it another.
4: Hang
1: on. Me... How about now? Is that working? Yes. Okay.
0: I mean, I at least I can see
1: it. Okay, perfect. I assume if you can see it, then everyone probably can. So uh, this is an active case, and I'll I'll kind of start off with some of the the uh, clinical. But anyone who um, was in the care of this patient, feel free to interrupt me and jump in with things that uh, need to be added. I'm just gonna kind of quickly summarize. So this was an, or is an uh, 81 year old man with a history of AFib on Warfarin, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and uh, prior peripheral artery bypass. Um, And he very recently uh, had a revision of his bypass graft. He was admitted on, in the 18th, for bleeding from his left groin, so he was presumed to have a graft infection, and he underwent uh, another excision in his graft where he had a pseudoaneurysm, and cultures were taken from the graft at that time. Um, those cultures grew back uh, MSSA. He also had blood cultures done at the same time that also grew MSSA, and he was treated with um, multiple antibiotics, uh, zosin, vancomycin, and cefazolin, which, was, which he was on, um, most recently, so nephrology was consulted because uh, he had a rapid rise in his creatinine. It was zero point six upon admission, and then uh, shortly after the um, the excision, it it had risen to one point six. Around the same time, he developed a generalized rash on upper and lower extremities, which was uh, cons- uh, palpable palpable. Purpura, purpura, consistent with a leukocytoclastic vasculitis um, clinically, and DERM was was consulted and did a skin biopsy, which confirmed an IgA-mediated uh, leukocytoclastic vas- vasculitis. So this was consistent with an HSP-type um, presentation. His AKI continued to worsen. It was up to 3.6 at the time of the biopsy. It's actually now, I think, 7.2. It may, may even be higher. That was the last time I looked. Um, He had a a similar rise in BUN. His hemoglobin was stable at 8.2. Of note, he had a clinical history of chronic hyponatremia that was being um, treated and seems to be resolved or resolving at this time. He did have three plus blood in his urine, although this was just after a fully catheter placement and two plus protein and his C3 and C4 were normal. So, I'll go on to the biopsy. Um, so, overall, there were uh, 10, 10 glomeruli, three were globally sclerose. So, for an 81 year old man with a history of hypertension, he actually had relatively um, mild background chronic changes. And I just I have here one representative glomerulus on the PAS stain. And um, I'll show a, a couple more after this, but you can see there's a few open capillary loops, but For the most part, this has kind of a lobular appearance to it with a lot of hypercellularity. And as we go out, you can see that most of the capillary loops are occluded by either large endothelial, swollen endothelial cells, or some of these cells that um, have kind of a multi-lobulated or uh, multi-lobed nuclei, and I'll show those better on the H&E stain in just a moment. Here's another uh, glomerulus that again on the PAS stain that looks very similar to that last one. I just thought this was kind of another nicer example of how this this sort of lobulated overall global architecture of the glomerular tuft um, appears and kind of that similar finding of this endocapillary hypercellularity and and occlusion of those peripheral capillary loops. Here's the H&E stain and you almost at this power wouldn't initially recognize it as a glomerulus because it's so hypercellular. And I think what we can appreciate a little bit better on this H versus the, the PAS stain is um, that many of these cells, occluding the capillary loops are neutrophils. So you can recognize those neutrophils by that um, kind of multi-lobulated appearance of their, their nuclei. They often look like they have multiple nuclei, but in fact, they do all connect at some point. Just a few other things of note before I go on to the IF, which is really kind of the the main part here. There's some evidence of uh, acute tubular injury in the form of these dilated proximal tubules that have started to lose some of their brush border and have uh, some areas of this non-isometric vacuolization. There were some red cell casts, some definitive red cell casts, but there was also a, there were a number of casts that had these Kind of atypical appearing globular um, material in them. And you know, we considered that this may be myoglobin and we have a myoglobin stain pending. I think he had a history of seizures at some point. Uh, so whether that correlates, um, we will see when we get the stain back. Alternatively, this may just be um, these may just be a manifestation of his ATN as well. So for, for the IF, I'll kind of go through a couple of different stains, but the, um, this is the IGA, and you can see that there's this sort of linear interrupted and uh, granular staining throughout both, some mesangial areas, but predominantly out around the capillary loops. Um, here's kind of a good one here with that granular staining. I'll kind of go back and forth between the IGA and the C3 but you can see that the C3 here has essentially that essentially the same pattern this is not the same glomerulus um, but it shows essentially that same pattern of both those kind of thicker linear interrupted areas as well as the granular areas roughly on so so by by light my, or by the by microscopy the c3 looked like it may have been a little bit more intense on these pictures, they kind of come out as appearing relatively co-dominant. And I think that's probably the, the best way to describe the um, these deposits. There was, a, there was uh, some IgA or IgG that certainly coincided with that similar pattern as the IgA and the C3. IgM and C1Q were essentially negative with maybe a little tiny bit of trace C1Q staining. By electron microscopy, this is a really good example of, so, so here are our, capilar, our capillary loops in our glomerular basement membrane out here. You can see that these are essentially entirely occluded either by endothelial cells, or here's a nice example of what is uh, likely a neutrophil uh, with this granular cytoplasm. And again, that um, bilobed or multilobed appearance of the, the nuclei. There were some scattered on the EM um, subendothelial electron dense immune complex type deposits. And there's in an area, kind of some of these areas down here, there, there are also some um, mesangial deposits as well. Of note, what I really kind of want to highlight here is there was not, there were no sub epithelial deposits and there were no sub epithelial humps. This is, this is not from this patient. This is an example of what a sub epithelial hump might look like. And I'll discuss the significance of that in just a moment. Um, but but we found nothing um, like that here. So I'm putting all of this together that we have, we no doubt have an immune complex mediated glomerular nephritis. By light microscopy, the predominant pathology or the predominant path, uh, pattern of injury would be proliferative, endocapillary proliferative, and has exudative features, so essentially the um, degree of neutrophilic inflammation, neutrophilic infiltration within those capillary loops. And we have what is probably best described as uh, uh, C3 and IgA co-dominant deposits. So this brings up a differential and I'll start off with one part of it. And you might say, why is this not just IgA nephropathy? It fits in very well in many ways. Uh, So, so we have no doubt mesangial and peripheral capillary loop IGA deposits together with C3. Um, And there's, you know, a lot of evidence that complement is uh, the, the alternate pathway is activated in IGA nephropathy. And it's very common to see C3 deposits in the same distribution as the IGA deposits, just as we saw here as well as um, it's okay to have um, some IgG staining as well. The patient has a known history of a biopsy just just prior to this kidney biopsy of IgA-mediated vasculitis by a skin biopsy. He has uh, subendothelial and mesangial or paramesangial deposits, so there's definitely a a much more proliferative component to this than you would typically associate with IGA nephropathy, however, in the context of this vasculitis, that would fit. And he does not have subepithelial humps, which would point you more towards a p- post-infectious uh, glomerular nephritis. However, although that seems, if you just put it out there, relatively straightforward, there is an entity of IGA-dominant post-infectious glomerular nephritis, um, which is commonly associated with staph infections, as this patient has. So in this, um, in this very nice little review here, they discuss kind of what are the features that might favor an IgA dominated post-infectious glomerular nephritis versus an IgA nephropathy. So some of the features are initial presentation uh, at an older age. So he's certainly older than the typical age of presenting with um, an IgA nephropathy, acute renal failure, Culture documented staph infections. This histopathologic pattern we see here of diffuse glomerular endocapillary hypercellularity with uh, neutrophil infiltration. So that's that exudative component. Stronger immunofluorescence staining for C3 than IgA. That's kind of plus or minus. I think they really kind of shake out to be um, more or less code, code dominant here. Hypocomplement, oh, and I put this all in quotes because I'm sort of, this is essentially quoted from their paper, although I reorganized it as a, as a list. Hypocomplementemia, uh, sorry, there should be a T there, which he did not have. His C3 and C4 uh, uh, were checked multiple times and were normal. And subepithelial humps. So, th- so essentially we have uh, four things in favor of an acute post, an a- IgA dominant, acute post-infectious glomerular nephritis and at least two things that might argue more for this to fit as an IgA nephropathy. So um, one thing that's kind of interesting is there's, there's certainly some literature that the IgA dominant um, post-infectious glomerulonephritis may be less likely to to have evidence of the subepithelial humps. Some of those patients may be more likely to have normal complement levels. This was a very interesting little um, retrospective review looking at uh, patients who had presented with IGA-dominant post-infectious glomerulonephritis with a culture-proven staph infection. So in their series, they had 37 patients. So what's really kind of the main point and the interesting aspect of this is that of their 37 patients, eight of them are about a fifth had an HSP-like presentation, just as this patient had. So in their cases, it was usually a lower extremity um, uh, palpable purpura. And they had similar um, biopsy findings to those that we had here in terms of uh, mesangial and, and uh, uh, endocapillary uh, IgA and C3 deposits. One thing I did not mention, um, but this patient did not have any evidence of crescents, and what's kind of interesting about their case in contrast to ours, so their, their main point of this paper is to recognize this presentation as possibly being associated with uh, staph infection, particularly in older people. In our case, we're a little bit the inverse of that in that the staph infection was the first thing recognized. Um, so we're not in this position of uh, essentially the staph infection is being treated. And that's kind of their main point here is to um, recognize this pitfall and be aware that patients with staph infection can present with an HSP-like presentation. So I think when we put this all together, uh, the things that we can confidently say is there's an immune complex mediated glomerulonephritis with proliferative and exudative features and C3 and IgA co-deposits. And the differential really includes both of those things, um, I think it's very difficult to tell uh, by the biopsy and or by his clinical presentation, um, which of these is really driving this pathology. Although he seems to have features of both uh, and he certainly has good evidence of a, of a systemic HSP IgA mediated um, type disease. So that's all I have. I, I would be very interested to hear um, what others have to say. And thoughts on this case.
4: Take hey, Kyle, Fadia I'm All not right. I'm not really sure. Hey, I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive right. uh, diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I would argue this is acute, post infectious. And if you leave if you leave the, the antigen uh, stimulation and complement activation long enough will evolve into chronic higher nephropathy. And nothing to say nephropathy doesn't start that way. So depending on the trigger which is tab in this case, how long is it going to last, can we remove it or we can remove it and so on. So, so, so those not really two, two separate diagnosis. I believe it's all part of the same process. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks.
0: Yeah. The only one thing, and I'll take advantage of Dr. Nestor's presence here, um, you know, would that, and definitely these, these diagnostic possibilities. Uh, One other thing that Always in the backs of our minds is um, given that there is a C3, how, you know, and we do have, we do know that the C3 and C4 uh, levels are normal, but how, you know, we've seen cases of C3 dominant glomerulonephritis that were triggered by an infectious process. Some cases had IgA, although this case has a little bit stronger IgA, but how far should we pursue any other alternative dysregulation? of complement pathway in a few, you know, especially if the case doesn't resolve. Um, with, um, and I don't want to bring complication to the case, just, you know, taking advantage of that we are thinking in coll- collective, collectively here.
3: From my standpoint, since the, you know, this idea of IGA um dominant post-infectious GN has been reported and it's been in a scenario very close to this that I don't think we have to invoke C3G as being uh you know the the disease here and that you know the patient happens to have C3G that was then triggered by an IgA dominant or an IgA or it's SAF infection, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think uh given the rarity of C3G, I'm okay leaving this as IgA dominant uh, PIGN for this patient. And the one piece, you know, why is his C3 not low? Well, is it possible this patient's incredibly inflamed because of all the issues he's gone through? So, really, what you have is a pseudo normalization of his C3 because uh, C3 is an acute phase reactant, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know. But I think back to your original point, it, obviously, if the patient doesn't resolve this picture of glomerulonephritis, yet you do resolve his infection then that would be a time for me to invoke another differential but i i probably wouldn't do it uh before that
5: would you even see a vasculitis with uh, c3g
3: um in theory no um you know i mean the the i i'm waffle only a little bit because um uh you know, I, I, I sort of thought maybe Danny's question was, is this C3G that was then triggered by the infection? So you could still ascribe the vasculitis to the infection, but this patient has C3G underlying it, uh, that sort of thing.
6: So so I had this case uh, last week, you know, uh, I guess uh, probably Sarabda uh, uh, took over uh, today. So, so I, I think that my, from the history and from the presentation, I mean, clearly this is uh, uh, related to staff infection, you know, the timeline uh, uh, coincides very well. And a uh, uh, couple of interesting points is like we talk about a compliment, we actually checked twice. Uh, it was all uh, um, uh, normal. And so what, uh, whatever you call this, uh, IGA dominant post-infection GN or, or IgA, I think there's a lot of overlap. I mean diagnosis uh, because bottom line underlying uh, uh, molecular mechanism of uh, a lot of these diseases we don't know. So it doesn't really as important, you know, uh uh what what you label, what name you label it, you know. So what I've been interested in is whether uh, there is a way to, you know, I think I, I asked Danny and Kyle and, and Dao Fu, whether there is a way to isolate uh, circulating immune complex and do kind of analytical uh, electrophoresis to like an uh, uh, IgA uh, glycosylation pattern, you know, and so there is a lactose uh, 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 deficiency. Uh, under glycosylation like, of IgA, whether that would be more favorable to the classical IgA nephropathy because that it's been believed that's kind of a, a, a set up for the IgA nephropathy. Maybe he does have uh, you know uh, these patients of uh, uh, IgA dominant post-infectious have some kind of underlying IgA uh, predisposition. Who knows? You know, but but the question I guess I mean he has received. Uh, so you measure one gram uh, uh, times three and ended yesterday. I guess Surrat is probably one uh, has to decide what's the next step. You know, besides putting to oral prednisone, creatine has continued to rise. Uh, and uh, in Kaya's review, it does say this uh, IgA dominant post-infection Gn seems to be prognosis much worse, you know. So, so what will be the? I like to. I think Siraj probably want to know what people share with, you know, what uh, what do in terms of treatment? What the next steps? You know, uh, yeah, I'm just want to open up for, for 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 the discussion uh, for that aspect. From so, my standpoint, uh, from my standpoint.
3: Um, you know, obviously, I, I, I underline part of what you were saying, too. There aren't any clinical trials. There aren't any uh, large cohort studies in this entity. But I'm pretty impressed by the degree of proliferation on that biopsy. So I don't think that that's just going to go away. Uh, so, you know, um, I think that I would be interested in continuing, if this patient can tolerate some steroids, I'd be interested in continuing some steroids. And then maybe this is the kind of patient that if you get them all the way through the infection, or or um, at least you know a couple of weeks, even months down the road, you re biopsy to see if you've actually impacted that.
6: And he has been actually very adequate treated in terms of infection. I mean, multiple culture afterward has been negative, and then and then also actually did the local uh, vancomycin wound treatment. So. So, and yeah, so, so it's kind of uh, interesting. The other thing I think a pathology maybe can, can, can help us, you know, in, in such a rapid rising without question and seems to be also associated with IgA dominance, you know, As uh, does that share any mechanistic uh, insight and potential uh, response to treatment, you know? Uh,
3: I think I missed it, uh, uh, Kyle. What, uh, mm-hmm. How much ATN was
1: there? It, it was diffuse. I mean, yeah. So is it, uh,
6: if you see several questions, uh, does that, uh, I guess, uh, the, again, in your, in your case, uh, in your paper, you also say this is, uh, Tend less to associate with a uh, question uh, right? Is that uh, also related to the uh, potentially less res- because uh, less responsive to post steroids? Uh, I, I
1: yeah, that's a good question. I don't. I don't know if Danny, you have any thoughts on that? I, yeah. I, well,
0: uh-huh. technically, <laughs> you know, number one, uh, when we have. IgA in the setting of HSP, we do do tend to, you know, classically and rely in the presence of uh, uh, crescents or at least uh, necrotizing features to go and move on to a straightforward vasculitis. That being said, um, the neutrophilic infiltration of of glomeruli is technically a microvascular injury, um, and can be seen in glomerulonephritis with vasculitic pictures, such as even ANCA uh, glomerulonephritis, that is, is a typical vasculitis with crescent, but the, the, actually when there is some endocapillary hypercellularity is in the form of neutrophils, so it is within the spectrum of vasculitis, although it overlaps with, for example, in post you can see numerous neutrophils and that was also our dilemma here because you can see numerous neutrophils in pulse infections and when we only had the light microscopy you know we considered that possibility and not i mean we knew some of the history that had an infection and so forth but just to answer the question um in the setting of you know hsp evidence of systemic vasculitis and with this infiltration of neutrophils we could suggest that there is a and even, you know, like uh, Kyle showed a picture of HSP with IgA and uh, actually didn't have crescents, but had this infiltration by neutrophils. So we could suggest that the neutrophils here are more an indication of microvascular injury, meaning, you know, in the vasculitic spectrum rather than a inflammation from a post if. if I don't know if this confuses you more, or
4: mm-hmm. if it answers the question. Or hey, d- or daddy, like, fatty, fatty, uh-huh. hey, I was looking at the H and E and so on. It looked like just typical post-infectious. That's right. not. This example looks like post-infectious GN to me. A lot of white cells, a lot of exudated, uh, infiltrate, a lot of intercapillary proliferation. So looking at the the light microscopy, look like a classic post-infectious to me, and and really nothing in the. Middle fluorescence is different except the IgA dominance as opposed to IgG. Uh, so it looked like just classic post infectious IgA dominant and treated accordingly. To me, I don't know.
5: But well, the IgA uh, is seen with uh, staph infection. So that's, that's typical from that perspective. Right. Uh, if you're thinking immunosuppressive therapies, if you have a post-infectious, obviously you wouldn't do that. Uh, Ig nephropathy by, by itself doesn't respond to, to immunosuppression It's by, by themselves or steroids with something else. But if we're talking vasculitis, maybe in that case, uh, immunosuppression would have a role. And you're losing kidney function fast here. You don't see any scarring. So the, I, I think the main question here is, is to continue immunosuppression or not.
0: Exactly. That's my, you know, that's my, um, my fear. Like if, you know, if we just, if this is just a straightforward post infectious but in the setting of systemic vasculitis, shouldn't we, you know, just gather the whole clinical picture and uh, consider it a vasculitis and, you know, yeah, and not miss the window for maybe a, a more aggressive treatment that could potentially preserve some renal
6: function, right? But, yeah. So, so, Serhat, what is your thought? You know, uh, for going forward today, and he has completed three days of pause. Well,
4: I've, <clears throat> I, I've, uh, I have i i have not had a chance to see this person yet. Uh, I mean, we just finished the ICUs this morning. So, but uh, from what you're saying, uh, <laughs> it is concerning and. Uh, Right now, I, I seem to have an inclination to continuing some steroids uh, based on what uh, our discussions uh, that have just taken place. But again, I, I <laughs> um, forgive me, but I haven't seen the patient yet today. so So I
5: think if, if, you, if you decide for immunosuppression, again, for IGA, steroids by themselves don't do anything um you know there are, there is a new uh, uh, budesonide formulation that's been uh, used uh, but not in acute settings and uh, again if you continue to use uh, to use uh, immunosuppression the question uh, which i i would uh, suggest is uh, to add uh, something else to it uh, to discourage so
6: so so maybe Carl and the pathologist can help us uh, a little bit. So sort of, again, my limited reading is, and again, like uh, Kyle's uh, review is, uh, so this uh, IgA dominant post-infection, they they can have a good percentage of, don't have uh, sub humps, right? Right. What right. Do we know about the uh, humps is because of IgA Complex going there and it's IgA for some reason just does not cross. Uh, uh, anyone has in, and uh, so so the so electron, electron tense hump is, it is IgA immune complex, right?
3: But even so, I, and again, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll jump in. I know pathology, they're gonna be the experts at this, but I, I'll just use the example. There's a lot of post-infectious GN that you never see humps and in C3G, for instance, which you all know, you know, obviously I'm going to bring that up in C3G, we do see sub epithelial humps. So I have learned over time that sub epithelial humps are not useful for solving your differential as far as I'm concerned. There's my that's my comment. I'm sorry. So pathology, it's your turn.
1: Yeah. And certainly, I mean, they're not always IGA. So I don't know how much that necessarily, um, you know, is is informative of the the diagnosis in this in this case, or um, the, you know the I don't think the absence of them here really distinguishes one way or the other. Although certainly, if they were present, I think it would have it would have been somewhat helpful. But
5: in there are even more rare when we're talking about staff related uh, uh, right post infectious type of
6: pictures.
3: It didn't technically answer your question you were wondering if the if the glycosylated iga or iga doesn't get across the basement membrane and then therefore doesn't make your hump and i don't know the answer to that question yeah. but I, I don't need to know necessarily uh, whether that's physiologically possible in order to disagree with or in order to agree that we didn't need to see them here to call it iga or not call it iga
0: yeah, I don't know the answer to the question either, but um, uh, we do see staining of deposits with IGA. In uh, IGA uh, dominant, it's not necessary that the humps are just going to stain for the C3. They also stain for the IGA. So um, technically, I mean, and we don't know if some of these deposits are also forming outside, like in the urinary space either. Um, and just depositing on the top or versus crossing the GBM barrier barrier which is most likely
1: and in and in classic post infectious you know they would be c3 predominant so i don't think there's anything inherent in iga that all you know necessarily key, you know because they can be seen in you know like danny said in i in iga dominant as well so i don't know if there's any inherent Biologic feature of, of IgA that we're not seeing them here because certainly they are described in many of the IgA dominant cases.
3: So.
6: The other uh, kind of academic question, which I never quite understood, is uh, I mean, if you look at uh, again, uh, people talk about a role of complement in IgA. Uh, nephropathy, you know, and but uh, if you look at uh, the current understanding, I mean, you could have a first hit, second, third, and fourth hit, and every hit, uh, they always uh, link it to an alternative pathway activation of complement. But uh, but we don't see, a, uh, a- in an animal model, if you debris complement, it does help uh, prevent the uh, uh, IgA nephropathy. So why we're not seeing, the, we do see a lot of uh, IgA nephropathy, with complement deposition, but systemic complement tend to be normal and that's how we uh, di- differentiate between IgA and proper post-infections, you know? So does any, anyone know? Uh,
3: Yeah, so uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think we actually know what the associate, you know, how complement is active in IGA, and I know that there are some of the the pharmaceutical companies that are suggesting that it is probably an alternative pathway issue, but some of the more recent data I was under the understanding is is that you're getting um, lectin pathway activation, so not alternative pathway, not classical pathway, but lectin pathway activation, and that, uh, because the alternative pathway is the amplification loop for all three. I think that it's possible that you get the C3 deposition because of a lectin pathway activation. Maybe you don't get the C3 depression because the lectin pathway is not as strong, if you will, as the alternative pathway, but I don't think anybody really completely understands. The best, I the best, some of the best data I've seen is. Where you um, the the immune complexes that form uh, can bind the mannose binding protein, and I think that that's why the electin pathway gets activated. But um, I, I think you know it's it's not clear. I don't think. But I'm not surprised when we don't see the C3 being low in in IgA. But. On the other hand, if it's a really aggressive, active IgA, we do see sometimes see C3 low, but that would still be allowed if your lectin pathway was was activated, just because of the you know the amplification loop piece.
5: Yeah, not only that, Carla, but there is an association between uh, mannose-binding uh, protein levels in the urine uh, and actually staining in the tissue with the severity of the IgA.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So so that that very well could be the actual connection and then it's just a matter of how aggressive the disease is as to whether you'll see the C3b low or not um, and then so so I, you know again I'm impressed by the the exudative uh, presentation in this patient. This, for me, this would not be IGA is this patient's active disease. This patient may have underlying IGA. I don't know, but there is, there's clearly a trigger for the aggressive piece of this patient's disease. And I think the exudative piece here it suggests it's the infection.
5: I think to translate what you're saying, you would see uh uh, crescents, uh, if you would have normally seen this uh, active or this aggressive of an IGA? Is that what you're saying?
3: I think so. Again, you know, I mean, not everybody, I mean, who knows? You said you had 10 GLOMs. Maybe if you had 12 or 15 GLOMs, you'd have a crescent or two. I don't know. But uh, but I, that that's what I would imagine is, is that uh, if this were a true IGA patient, uh, I, would, I would be impressed, you would suspect with this degree of renal failure, again, if we're not associating it with the ATN, that this would be crescentic Vasculitic disease, which IgA obviously can be, um, but you know, as you guys know, there's a lot of diseases can be, have a vasculitic component, and um, you know, it is also possible in infection to have a vasculitic component, the same as it is for drugs and for ANCA and 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 lots of lots of our diseases can have a vasculitic component. Again, that's that's my nephrology view, not so much a pathology view.
5: I think Chao Long's question was if we can measure the undergalactosidated uh, IgA in the serum, that, and that would help uh, in this case with the differential. And but it may
3: suggest underlying IgA that, there was, that was then tipped over. You you you're just gonna You're going to get the patient's risk factor for IgA, but not necessarily risk factor for this disease presentation. But I do agree it would be an interesting answer to have.
6: So so pathologists, can we uh, uh, draw some blood and isolate the immune, the immune complex and then run a laboratory and I need to go and kind of just curious, you know, uh, for more academic interests, you know. uh, I I don't know, I mean, Daogu, are you interested in uh, running? Oh Yeah, maybe. So I have one more question about this case. So um, what is the INR? Because uh, the patient is AFib under warfarin, right? And and the picture you see on that tubules, it could be a hemorrhage as well, right?
0: Right. I'm Mm -hmm. just raising
6: a possibility of a uh, warfarin-associated nephropathy.
0: Yeah, we we also um, looked at those globules under uh, trichrome and they didn't look that red. Some did, some didn't. And um, that's a good question. But we also sent it for hemoglobin, and actually we're doing a pronase, just in case for cap lambda, because I think this would be the most differentials. Um, hemoglobin, you know, uh, hem, um, uh, myoglobin, and and some light chain process. But just to be on the safe side, we, <laughs> you know, just to be on the safe side. But that's yeah, I. That's a good question. Sorry, I I interrupted. I don't know the INR for the patient.
1: Yeah, I don't.
6: Uh, I think Melissa said it is 1.1 so okay okay that's a
0: good good point um I you know if you don't have any more discussion I'm gonna move on to the second patient okay Okay, and then this Dr. Kuo's case um, as well. So Dr. Kuo, if you are here, and um, you know, I'm just gonna present uh, some of the history that I collected. Um, but if you wanna, you know, just jump in and and complement or correct me, please feel free to. And I think Sonali also um, had this patient. Um, so this is a 77-year-old male. He first presented in February in Illinois with a hypertensive crisis. He is hypertensive, but um, you know, ma- reportedly his uh, blood pressures are well controlled. So he presented with the, this, um, you know, uh, systolic blood pressures up to 200, and was found also to have um, mildly elevated, like, well, creatinine um, in the 1.8 to choose, um, when uh, tested in the ER. And then he, at that point, he did have a, a renal biopsy. Um, this actually is a biopsy from May, and it's a repeat biopsy because that first biopsy from that time when he first presented, which was not available, was performed at an, at an outside hospital and showed inadequate sample. So it didn't have anything for light microscopy, but the IF was, had actually a linear uh, IgG Uh, staining in the glomeruli, in the glomeruli capillary loop, so it was concerning for anti-GBM-induced glomerulonephritis. Um, currently when the patient was seen, meaning in May, when he was seen here, he had a uh, persistent proteinuria at two plus and hematuria at three plus, uh, serology for ANA was po- mildly positive, borderline positive, and, but the serology for ANCA and anti-GBM, which was a qualitative antibody were negative and have been negative ever since. Um, serum complements were within normal limits. Uh, patient did have anemia and a plate, plate count of 119,000. ESR was, was 74 and CRP less than 0.5. Serologists for he- viral hepatitis B and C were negative. Serum albumin of 4 and the creatinine was fluctuating in the 2.5 and trending down to 2.3 and 2.2. So the patient did mention that his symptoms started after he got his COVID uh, first dose. Um, uh, first dose was in, was in February, February 8th, and the second dose was in March 1st. And he had noticed a slightly reduced urine output and some bubbling in his urine, but no gross hematuria. And um, also he, at this point in May, he had a, uh, extreme lower extremity swellings, and he denied fever or chills. He denied any chest pain, shortness of breath, or orthopnea, and PND, and he had no cough or cough or hemoptysis, and uh, no joint aches or pains, uh, no gross blood visible in urine, although he was aware that microscopic, he had microscopic hematuria since uh, February. The patient's not diabetic and not a smoker, and sorry for the quality of these pictures. Um, this actually, this biopsy, Subsequently, after we analyzed it in May, I think the patient was seen in Mayo, and they asked for the slides, and they have the slides. So, and. Um, for some reason, when they copied the images, uh, it disappeared from my folder. So I actually copied and pasted from the report. But you can still appreciate that this glomerulus is not normal cellular on these H&E stains. And I know the new fellows um, have started. So um, in kidney pathology, we perform a series of special stains. We start by an H&E, but we also do some special stains. Um, so, this is HNE. HNE is, although it's a very good stain to evaluate inflammation um, and overall glomerular ar- architecture, it doesn't really give you glomerular detail. But you can see that even in this HNE, you can see that this glomerulus is hypercellular. Um, this is a PAS, it's another stain that uh, stains uh, glucosaminoglycan, so it will stain glomerular and tubular basement membrane. so it's much pinker than the HNE, and you can actually appreciate more glomerular detail, and here uh, you can see that you cannot visualize capillary loops, except for a few a residual glomerular spaces, but most of them are occluded by increased cellularity, and some of them actually have uh, some mesangial expansion in a nodular fashion that we uh, believe it's a segmental nodular sclerosis. Um, This is a JMS, which is a silver stain, so it will stain uh, Black and pink, and because we use HNE uh, as a counter stain. So the um, JMS will stain also, uh, you know, basement membranes in black. So the Bowman's capsule will be black and the mesangial areas as well. So you can see that there is a nodular mesangial expansion. Some of the uh, glomerular areas do appear to show some sclerosis, meaning that. You know, his process started in February, so there may be some evolving chronicity, but some uh, of the mesangial areas do show increased cellularity. So that means that the, the glomerulonephritis has some activity as well. Again, uh, this is another glomerulus that shows um, expansion of the mesangeal areas in nodular fashion, um, some with increased cellularity. some uh, suggesting more of a sclerosis. This glomerulus does not appear as proliferative as this one, but um, we do see some questionable um, double contouring or cell interposition in in these uh, capillary loops. And um, this is a trichrome stain. That's our fourth stain that we perform that will also stain collagen in blue. So Bowman's capsule and basement membranes will stain blue. But anything that cell, Will stain red, so the cell, the tubular cell will stain red, and the glomerular cells will also stain red. So you can see that there is uh, increased mesangial cellularity, some evolving uh, segmental sclerosis, nodular, and uh, some increased cellularity. So at this point, we call, you know, if I without looking at the immunofluorescence, I'm calling this a focal pro. Proliferative, and I, I I don't have a picture, but some glomeruli actually looked set less cellular than these that I'm showing you. So we call that a focal proliferative uh, glomerulonephritis, and uh, with also uh, some sclerosing features. Um, the patient had um, this is an area, and as you can see here, this is a trichrome, and some of the casts appeared red, and so some consistent with RBC casts, so indicating that there is hematuria coming from the glomeruli. Um, and there was um, this is a representative section of one of the sections that shows some uh, interstitial fibrosis. Again, collagen will stain blue, so anything that's in between the tubules that's blue going to indicate fibrosis. And we classified it as moderate interstitial fibrosis and mild to moderate tubular atrophy overall. Sorry, I don't have an overall picture. As I said, I we don't have the slides here. Um, so um, then we had, uh, you know, the immunofluorescence. Um, and actually, uh, we had 22 glomeruli and three were globally sclerose. So not bad at all, right? And, you know, you don't expect you know, mild to moderate interstitial fibrosis, tubular atrophy, and 3 of 32 global sclerose glomeruli to explain a creatinine of 2.2 just by chronic changes. So it indicates that there is some uh, either, you know, tubular injury or, and or glomerulonephritis, active glomerulonephritis contributing to this rise in creatinine. So, um, by, but uh, immunofluorescence showed um, linear pattern of IgG staining in the capillary loops, and it was basically negative for other immunoreactants other than Kappa and Lambda, which did stain um, in the same same pattern as the IgG. Note that the IgG was very strong, so not not questionable. Um, You can even compare to some tubular basement membranes around here that the glomerular basement membranes are staining much stronger. And um, the electron microscopy showed most of the capillary loops actually uh, looked like this. They uh, appeared kind of collapsed with wrinkling. Um, some increased in cellularity, like uh, you know these cells that are marginating here in this uh, capillary loop, a lot of wrinkling and without deposits. But in some areas, it did show tiny sub-epithelial deposits, almost mimicking a membranous pattern, but very minimal and some mesangial waste electron-dense deposits. So um, at this point, again, we call it a focal proliferative and sclerosing glomerulonephritis and positive anti-GBM, you know, in the, in, in the capillary loop. So, we recommended correlation again with the anti, you know, to repeat the anti GBM antibody. It was repeated and negative. We also suggested, we also sent it out for, since this is a typical presentation that doesn't fit with anti GBM, uh, classic anti GBM disease and the negative serology for anti GBM, we uh, mentioned, you know, a few other possible differentials. So, as there have been cases of anti-GBM-induced Gn due to monoclonal, monoclonal gammopathy, although the cap and lambda were equal, we did suggest you perform an SPEP, UPEP immunosfixation. They all came back negative after the biopsy for a monoclonal gammopathy. Um, so, and then we suggested the possibility of, that we were dealing with or strongly suspecting a... Um, ant, um, a typical anti-GBM uh, glomerulonephritis. We did send the IgG out for um, uh, IgG subclass, and it came back uh, positive for IgG1, 2, and 4. Actually, the IgG1 was the strongest, 3+. 2 and 4 were 1+, and IgG3 was negative. So indicating a IgG strong process, but um, polyclonal you know, protein. Um, so a few considerations, which I'm not sure I'm going to have time to go through, uh, all the way through, and I wanted to um, get Dr. Kuo's discussion on this, but I'll try to just fly through, um, you know, what's anti-GBM, glomerulonephritis, and good pressure syndrome. So it was first described in 1919, uh, um, you know, where it was, uh, the glomerulonephritis associated with pulmonary hemorrhage uh, and kidney dysfunction, um, this one young patient that had massive pulmonary hemorrhage. And um, when we use the term good pasture syndrome, we imply that there is pulmonary and renal syndrome causing by, caused by anti-GBM antibodies. Um, note that anti-GBM nephritis can occur in the absence of pulmonary involvement, and anti-GBM pulmonary hemorrhage can occur without renal involvement, although this is much more rare. Um, the, the, the protein that actually the antibodies made um, mostly is uh, the portion of the alpha-3 Chain of type 4 collagen in vascular basement membranes. That's why you have vasculitis. But as the antigen antibody forms these complexes at a molecular level and don't really form clump of electron-dense deposits, that w- that's why you don't really see a lot of deposits by... Uh, you see a positive immunofluorescence, but you don't see deposits by EM. But you can see a few, like we saw in this case. Um, so. You know, anti-GBM. What is usually, you know, what is an anti-GBM uh, disease? So usually you have the positive anti-GBM serology, and and uh, the G the Gn type is going to be uh, largely crescentic and necrotizing. Um, you know, you would have the IgG in a linear pattern by immunofluorescence, and not typically present. Uh, as immune complexes by electron microscopy. Um, And here is the frequency of serum. um, And also, I put ANCA just to, because it is the other type of glomerulonephritis with vasculitis and crescents that you see. And it's a big in the differential. Um, So uh, this is actually taken from UNC. um, And it shows a frequency uh, in a study that they did of serum ANCA only versus anti-GBM only. An anti-GBM positive anchor in the tissue with linear GBM IgG. Um, versus pulse-immune Gn. So when you have crescentic glomerulonephritis with linear IgG staining in the glomerulopathy, you know up to 61% of these cases is going to have anti-GBM. But note that up to 13% of these cases have negative both ANCA and anti-GBM. Um, and I'm happy to share this after the presentation, it's just that's already one o'clock, so I will just um, actually, um, let's see, a typical anti-GBM diseases. So cases are well recognized. There are rare reports of incidental anti-GBM staining in glomeruli in patients with vasculitis elsewhere and with long-term normal renal function. And usually it's status post steroid only treatment. So, you know, it's a partially like indicating partially treatment, partial treatment of this glomerulonephritis. And we've seen uh, less severe cases, but usually described in children. Um, This case, as we saw, there was no, there was no crescence. Um, And um, this You know, this actually, we got the report from Mayo Clinic. They agreed with our report that's consistent with atypical. Anti-GBM and so forth, and uh, they actually had this reference, and I reviewed it, and it's really interesting because um, they was it, from 2016, and they actually reviewed 20 cases of atypical anti-GBM glomerulonephritis among you know all the anti-GBMs that they had. The total was uh, 59 cases, so 11.8 cases were atypical anti-GBM over a seven-year study time period. The histologic features were very heterogeneous, although all cases showed mesangial and or endocapillary hypercellularity, as we see in this case. The most common pattern of glomerular injury was endocapillary proliferative glomerulonephritis, as we see here, although in our case we show we have also partial sclerosis of the glomeruli. Three cases actually showed the pattern of MPGN and um, focal crescents were also found, although we don't find uh, in this uh, in this patient. Um, the serology is actually uh, anti-GBn was undetectable in 18 patients tested by uh, ELISA, and and um, multiplex flow immunoassay. ANCA was negative in 17 of 18 patients tested, and the remaining patient, you know, of the 20 had positive. PANCA and negative PR3, and, and ANA was positive in one of 16 patients, and we, we had a, you know, our patient had positive um, ANA. Hepatitis B uh, was negative in, um, in 16 patients that were tested for hepatitis B, and this, this is the f- uh, picture of what they had. So no deposits by EM, positive linear IgG, Kappa and Lambda, and a proliferative pattern of uh, nephritis, as we see partially in this patient. So I have only two more slides. Um, so some clinical considerations for these cases. None, no, no, none of these patients had clinically evidenced pulmonary involvement like ours. And, and this is Compared with a 34% to 62% frequency rate in patients with classic anti GBM nephritis, most patients presented with hematuria, proteinuria, myodrino insufficiency, as opposed to the clinical picture uh, presentation of rapidly progressive immunocomplex glomerulonephritis um, in in classic anti GBM nephropathy. So the mean serum creatinine at the diagnosis at their cohort was 2.2 compared with 9.7 in other studies. So none of the patients needed dialysis and the degree of proteinuria in that cohort was higher than in patients with classic anti-GBM disease. Last slide. Um, So there is a mild clinical phenotype in these patients with atypical anti-GBM. First of all, atypical anti-GBM disease exists, right? And um, compared with Classic anti-GBM disease will reflect possibly the lack of crescentic phenotype in light microscopy, and also that their cohort appear to have better uh, patient and renal survival rates compared with patients with classic anti-GBM disease so they have like this one year rate survival you know which you know was 93 and 85% compared with 73 25% with patients with classic gbm and the superior pre- uh, patient and renal outcomes would like to re- re- reflect the lack of clinically evident lung involvement or crescentic phenotype and milder kidney impairment at diagnosis so i don't know if anybody would wanna comment so, so Danny, did you
4: guys treat it? Did you treat them,
2: or just so, watch him? So no, um, actually, my recommendation at that time—this is Elizabeth—I saw the patient at the time, so he was referred to us for kidney biopsy. And when we have the uh, that biopsy result, my recommendation was just to treat with some moderate immunosuppression. Uh, but uh, I think the referring uh, nephrologist was a bit concerned because of the uh, the linear, you know, confirming anti-gbm uh, disease and so he was thinking more like um, more aggressive as when we treat with rpg and type pictures Um so i, I think uh, basically my recommendation for him was to start with some steroid and some maybe something like a mycophenolate or imuran. but you know this is something that uh I, I, two learning points one is that um again w- a person does not have to have RPGM when they uh, have anti-GBM antibody. This is what, something that uh, when I told people that they couldn't believe. But when I was uh, 20 years ago, when um, I heard somebody from my, my previous mentor told me, yes, there is something called chronic GM from associated with anti-GBM antibody. So that's so-called atypical anti-GBM. And the other thing is uh, I'm open to this because uh, I don't know how how best to treat it. But my own feeling is that this is 80-something-year-old with active GN on biopsy, but is not clinically, not RPGN-like picture. I would treat with some immunosuppression, but I probably will not do uh, like, a, what you call uh, induction with the pulse steroid or pulse cytoxin. But I don't know what other people think though. It would be interesting. Can anybody? Make some suggestion. I,
4: I agree with I'll you. I certainly agree with you, and it does not look like it's an active disease. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
5: There is no reason to be aggressive uh, this agent with with the disease no. that you see and uh, with the lack of crescent. So yeah, I wouldn't be aggressive with this.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> really nice to hear. You know, people um, confirm me my uh, my own impression. But that was a recommendation I gave to the referring physician. But I think he. He and, and I think there there is a lot of uh, people feeling that uh, oh anti-GBM uh, you have to have plasma phoresis, et etc. Of course for this particular patient even his uh, serology was negative so there's nothing to 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 pause uh, to, to to do plasma freezes on. But yeah so that was a question because this is uh, the first time I encountered this uh, scenario so it's, you know I like to be able to find out how other people would treat, uh, how other people would manage this.
4: So what did Mayo do? Do you do you know?
2: I don't know. Uh, I never got a chance to follow up with them. And sure. I, um, I don't know. I kind of doubt they would be aggressive, but uh, I never did I uh, follow up. But this is something I would look into if I find out his name, I kind of lost track.
5: I think this presentation, like uh, a lot of others that we reviewed in this lecture, show uh, that the things that we learn, uh, diseases are not typical and don't have the same presentations and same, same treatments. So to me, that's the main uh, lesson for this. I also want to take the opportunity to thank uh, Danny for, for many years of providing excellent pathology service and uh, teaching and uh, really wish her, her good luck and uh, hope that she stays in touch with us. and. Uh, uh, really that uh, i wish her to do well
2: oh i'm so sorry to hear that because i just sent her a message not too long ago wasn't aware that she was leaving us i said i so enjoyed our pathology uh, presentation here and because i learned a lot from her Danny, I'm sorry to hear well, that. thank you so much
0: for the kind words. Um, I will miss this department dearly. I consider it my home, <laughs> so I will keep in touch. Uh, you know, I'm one phone call away. I want my phone won't move, uh, won't change. It was a true pleasure working with you. I I learned more than I probably thought <laughs> uh, from you. And uh, But, you know, Dr. Conway is... Um, do, as you can, as you could see with his presentation, he's, um, you know, coming along with flying colors as well. And um, Dr. Astogi is uh, now spe- stepping up as the division director, and Dr. Dai will continue. And uh, But hopefully we'll see everybody in, in future meetings and share cases.
2: Yeah, we have interesting, very, so very fun. interesting cases here, really a strong yeah. renal pathology.
0: Thank you so much. Uh. <laughs>
3: Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye.